From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a show about the journalists, creatives, and writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. Today, um, we're going to be talking about Jeff Wise article on Young Thug's influence with BBC, Rick Delay on YouTube with a review of Mavi's album Let the Sun Talk, and Elias Light with Rolling Stone on Kanye West and gospel music. So today I'm here with uh, Carter Fowler checking in. I'm the founder and EIC at Central Sauce. Uh, and just got back from a trip to India and brought a whole bunch of that beautiful Delhi smog back with me in my lungs. So please forgive me if I go ahead and cough a couple times or if I come across a little raspy on the podcast episode. I'm getting better as fast as I can, I promise. (laughs) Uh, My name is Ryan Gore. I'm a writer on Central Source. And I've just spent the whole day listening to Oswald Shirt and playing Luigi's Mansion 3. Beautiful. And this is Brandon Hill with Central Sauce. And lately I've been listening to Wale's new album and the new Gangstar album. Both fantastic projects. I need to check out that Gangstar. All right. And uh, today we're going to start first with Carter. Uh, Carter, why don't you go ahead and introduce the Young Thug piece by Jeff Weiss? Yeah, so um, I spent a couple of hours this week, probably three or four hours, going through and reading pieces from all my favorite outlets, looking for, you know, OC self-blogs on Reddit, all kinds of stuff, and nothing really stuck with me quite as well as this profile on Young Thug, uh, written by Jeff Weiss, who's a founder of PassionOfTheWeiss.com. Um, funnily enough, the other, out, the other article that I was considering uh, kind of made my final two shortlist was an article by a different author, but on his website, Passion of the Weiss. <laughs> so either way, shout out to Jeff Weiss. You're killing it in many different directions. Um, so in this article, he kind of discusses the influence of Young Thug, particularly on Atlanta's sound over the last five to 10 years and how 2019 was Thug's coronation in many ways. Um, at, I think in the first, second paragraph, he describes him as, quote, the sun king at the center of rap's solar system. And that is a pretty good uh, encapsulation of um, the way that he's describing and discussing Young Thug's rise here. Um, You know, Thug rose from being the 10th of 11 children, which is something I did not know about, in the Jonesboro South projects in Atlanta, to being what Jeff describes as one of the most influential artists of the new millennia. There was a lot that I really loved about this article, uh, but in particular, I really appreciated how Jeff was able to write about Thug's sound and his voice, because it's a very challenging topic to give any kind of um, weight to and not start sounding generic and repetitive. Uh, One of my favorite excerpts was uh, when Jeff was describing Thug's breakthrough hit, Stoner, he said, it was, quote, forged from a DNA mutation whose bloodstream was equal parts strawberry Jolly Rancher, promethazine, weed, molly, and esoteric powders beamed in from the plug on Beetlejuice. You know, and, and that's just kind of an intro to all the really creative, but also not just shipping um, substance for laughs and chuckles uh, in how he describes it. Um, Particularly how he describes Thug's voice throughout the piece, which is really, you know, a tall task. A few of my favorites were when he talked about it as Neon Lava or Dragon in Couture Croak or uh, Slippery Electric Eel Cadences. Um, I just, it's it's a tough topic, especially when you're talking about the sonics of Young Thug, and I thought he really nailed it in a lot of ways. Um, I guess I kind of want to throw it to you guys uh, with a question. And in the article, he says, Young Thug became his own genre in 2019. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think he hit the nail on the head? Um, do you disagree for some reason? 
Uh, what's your reaction? Initially, like, uh, on the surface level, looking at the piece, it didn't strike me as something I'd agree with. Um, I mean, it's framed as him being the most influential artist of the decade, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not the it's not the obvious answer that I like had in my head, but um, reading the piece is very convincing, and it is. yeah, <laughs> persuasive exactly. And the way he um, details all his all of his children, all of Young Thug's children, all the um, artists who are imitating slash were birthed from him slash are inspired by him, it's really hard to argue with that. Um, that thesis that he did have his coronation in this year and that now so much of mainstream hip-hop revolves around Young Thug and the essentially the barriers that he broke down. Um, I think at this stage in hip-hop, Young Thug's brought to a place where like nothing is too weird. <laughs> <laughs> and that's... And that's what's getting the most um, mainstream attention is that stuff that's really strange. You would never have a Playboy Cardi 10 years ago. He would get thrown out immediately, but there's something about what Young Thug did that tore down, the, tore down those barriers of and wiped the dust off <laughs> mainstream hip-hop. I think also the guys that he did it under the name Young Thug. Yeah. Too kind of lent it a little bit more weight as well because people couldn't so easily i don't know dismiss it as something what do you think brandon yeah so i mean i think i definitely agree with the sentiment of you know young thug at least carving out a very unique place kind of based in his sound and based in you know what ryan said about making nothing too strange for hip-hop anymore the only thing that I might slightly disagree on the sentiment is probably the timing. Like, I, I don't know why it has to be that young, like that 2019 was the year that he carved this out, because I think if you go back, yeah. I mean, Thug has kind of been carving it out since he first started. Uh, like, the article specifically mentioned Barter 6, so I went back and I was listening to, like, Barter 6 today, and even though that they mentioned how Thug his sound is kind of derivative and inspired of Lil Wayne. Um, it's still, I mean, even right off the bat, he was very different than Lil Wayne in his, you know, in his cadences and sounds where it was a much, much bigger gap, I think, between Thug and Wayne than that there mm-hmm. is between Thug and, say, Gunna or Lil Baby. Like, he just seemed to be very much more his own thing off the jump, even if he was a little bit derivative of someone like Wayne. Yeah, I felt similarly. I thought it was strange that to crown or to point to 2019 specifically as the year that this happened for Thug. I do get it with so much fun hitting number one, like his first number one album in that way. Um, I don't even think his collab with Future, uh, Super Slimy, hit number one. That's what I was going to ask if that was his first first yeah. number one, which I felt like it was, but I wasn't 100% yeah. sure. and so I get it for that reason, but also I don't think Thug's like, significance has ever been defined by his sales or his commercial revel- or relevance in a way. So for that reason, it did seem kind of strange to me to say 2019, but um, I... In, in keeping with what you were just speaking about, Brandon, something that I struggle with a lot is uh, comparing Thug and Future. Because I always, and I've had this conversation with a few of the guys on Central Sauce, that I've always kind of considered Future as the one who came before. Uh, both because I just started listening to him earlier as a kid growing up in Atlanta, um, and also because he had, you know, some of those early hits, right? And they took two very different routes. They weren't so different in the beginning, like when Thug was just getting started out, but Future definitely found his sound earlier on and has been more consistent with that, whereas Thug has been a little more experimental with what he'll do. But, you know, in my eyes, Future is kind of an essential part of the conversation whenever you're talking about this topic of Young Thug's influence. And I was, I get it why he wasn't brought up much to keep the focus of the piece narrow. Uh, 
But, you know, in my eyes, Future dropped his first mixtape over a year before Young Thug had dropped anything. He dropped Dirty Sprite another six months before Thug made his debut. And, you know, just for starters, here's a list of hits that Future had before Thug got signed by Gucci, which is kind of when his career jump-started in my eyes. Future had already released Tony Montana, Same Damn Time, which I'm sure at least one of us has sang to ourselves in the past week. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Never End, Honest, Turn On The Lights. These were all tracks that happened before Thug even got signed and did anything beyond a self-released mixtape. And so I think that over time, Thug has differentiated himself a lot. But I think many of these children, quote-unquote, that they talk about with Young Thug have as much, or if not equal parts, pretty closely influenced by Future in that sound, especially when we're talking about Atlanta. Uh, what do you guys think? Do you, do you have that same dissonance, or am I kind of I alone think, here? I mean, I think Future definitely, weight-wise, like, this, you know, if we're talking just, like, size of the artist, um, you know, Future's definitely up there. But I think that there are so many other aspects to Thug that have translated over than just, like, Future has this sound and he's this sound is now popular because of Future, so people want to imitate Future. Thug has a whole thing around him, and his, his sound is also just, like, much more distinct in the variety that he brings within his own sound. Like you said, um, you know, Future established his sound early on. Thug's kind of whole picture is that malleability and, like, being able to not land on something and stick with it, but, like, constantly, constantly switch it up. Um, even, you know, within within the same song, he'll switch up his flow. I think in the article they quoted, like, 10-plus times on a song off Stoner where he switched up his flow. Something like that, but mm-hmm. I, I think it's just Thug's whole image and everything that has made it much easier to point to, like, okay, this artist is doing something very similar to what Thug's doing as a whole. Not just, like, imitating a sound, but they are, you know, directly following up on how Thug moved and how, you know, he continues to move, versus off of Future just kind of, you know, popularizing a certain brand of, you know, Atlanta sound. And I think that, like, to some extent, every father of a sound is going to have a... There's going to be a grandfather of the sound. You can always trace it back to someone. I yeah, just which think is that, what they talk about on Wayne with... Yeah, team. exactly. Or at the very least, an uncle. Yeah, right. But um, with what Young Thug did with what Future had kind of laid the groundwork for, it's at this point, if you're talking about where he is in 2019, it's unbelievably distinct. The where mm-hmm. the places where Thug has gone. Didn't he make a country album last year? Like, <laughs> or a year, two years ago? I'm not sure when, but he has kind of diversified himself to the point where his, his, his upbringing is almost unrecognisable and he is yeah. the star, the centre of the solar system. True. Um, one thing uh, I just... I wanted to ask really quick, have either of you guys read Gucci's autobiography? I have not. I haven't. No. Okay, because uh, he has a great... There are a lot of excellent stories in there. Um, and most some of the best ones don't even really have to do with Gucci. It's when Gucci came across some of these artists for the first time. Because, you know, he's almost like a bellwether for some of these things. Like, the amount of people that he met just like six to 18 months before they blew up, either because of him, because of, you know, or largely because of him, or just serendipitously is wild. Um, but he, when he talks about uh, how he met Young Thug and the way he knew Young Thug was going to be a star one day, um, I, I, I thought it was that story came to mind because um, there was one line that Jeff had said in the piece that. Thug was considered too extraterrestrial, idiosyncratic, and hostile to the promotional demands required to become the chart-topping, festival-headlining star that is talent-warranted. And I agree to an extent because that is probably how any kind of label heads or people deeply embedded in the music industry felt. But that is not how Gucci felt at all when he met him. 
the story goes, and I'll just give a really brief recap on it, but Gucci had actually invited Pee Wee Longway to uh, Brick House, or to 1017 because he really wanted to convince Pee Wee to sign with his label because he thought Pee Wee was a great rapper. And they'd grown up together and he was familiar with him. And Pee Wee showed up with this like gangly... Uh, looking 17-year-old kid who had uh, like a breathing mask on like you see people wearing in like Beijing because apparently he was sick. And he, and he was like, who's this kid, Pee-wee? You know, like I wanted to come in here, like let's hear you rap. Like I got a deal. I got a bunch of cash for you right now. And he says, Gucci, you don't want me. I promise. You know who I am, but let me introduce you to my nephew. Uh, and so, and that was how he met Young Thug, right? And so he was very skeptical at first, and he's like, okay, well, let's see what he'll do in the, in the booth. So they put him in the booth, and he describes this moment so viscerally. I remember it almost as if I was there. Um, like, Thug steps up to the mic and brings down that face mask that he was wearing, almost like, uh, what is it, like Sub-Zero from <laughs> Mortal Kombat, you know? And he says, he brings it down like Sub-Zero, and then just begins emitting flames into the mic. And the sheer like energy and charisma and personality that this guy brought in the studio was unlike anything Gucci had ever seen. You know, he was just so animated with his movements bouncing off the walls in the studio on this very first session that Gucci said, I'm signing you right now. You know, and then like six months later came 1017 Records and that mixtape that kind of thug first began getting his name out on. Um, but that's one of my favorite stories from that book. And uh, it, it's just kind of wild to think about Thug at that early stage in life when he was just that 17-year-old that no one knew about. And I think, Cutty. you know, I think that's due to Thug shaping out that corner. You know, he made it so that, you know, because labels are always, you're always worried about how they're going to promote an artist and how, how much an artist is going to sell. And I think the way Thug does things is he made it possible for a label to look at an artist like him and say like okay yeah we can sell this guy you know it, like i always think of uh how much people talked about the cover of jeffrey um the one where he's looking like the mortal Kombat character again he's got like the hat and the big yeah. the big dress and everything like that like although he claims that it is not a dress it's yeah it's by some he will tell you Japanese that i've seen in several interviews he's like that was not a dress i don't know why people keep calling it that. <laughs> what if it is it looks sick <laughs> I love it. I think it looks amazing. Um, yeah, yeah I think it looks awesome too. <laughs> and he, but he made that kind of approach, like you know, and that kind of imagery work with thug hip hop. Yeah, that's a really interesting blend. I just find it funny that Carter's brought up Gucci Mane's biography like both times he's been on the podcast. I feel like every single time now you have to bring up like even if you forget up and read a page of the book, <laughs> you have to do. And it, I'm right? gonna keep doing it until. Every one of you, everyone that <laughs> listens to this podcast, buys that damn book and reads it from cover to cover. When uh, when did the autobiography come out? Did it come out like after he got out of jail, like recently within the last year? I think or so? it came out in twenty seventeen, okay, or maybe twenty sixteen. Um, yeah, after after he got out of jail, the most recent time when he was like, "I'm reforming my life to be the woman that my wife deserves." Yeah, or the woman, the man that my yeah. wife deserves. I, he he did it too, Gucci. I mean, he's changed a a lot just reading a thing about that the other day not the full autobiography but yeah. yeah that seems like a really good time to write a book as well i'm really interested in that now absolutely yeah or so. i could wait for every episode of in search of source and have the book read to me <laughs> page by page so i just wanted to close it out really quick by asking you guys in your personal opinion who is thug's greatest child That's i really a good like question. i like gunna I like Gunna. I it's it's kind of like myself. I don't listen to a whole lot of those artists outside of Thug, um, but if I pick one, I probably gotta go with Gunna. Uh, Drip too hard is just an absolute banger. I don't think there's yeah. any way of getting around that. <laughs> what do you think, Ryan? I didn't even listen to Young Thug to be honest with you. I can't say I listened to many of the artists this did. Um, from what I have heard, I'd probably say Gunner as well. He seems like the one that's like talked about the most mm-hmm. out of that kind of group. Yeah, he seems to be like the most like the most direct descendant in yeah. a way. 
Um, one that was just briefly mentioned in the article by Jeff that I thought was a really great shout because you actually don't hear him brought up much in the conversation. But when it's pointed out, you're like, yeah, it sounds exactly the same, especially with the ad-libs and everything. It's Travis Scott. People always talk about Travis Scott being like a Kanye protege. Yeah, the Cuddy protege. he's much more similar to Young Thug. And a lot of the things that he does with his voice that he's become so famous for are just like slightly less adventurous versions of what Young Thug does with his voice. Yeah. I see more future about, Travis probably. But. Yeah, especially in their beat selection yeah. and stuff. But when I was thinking about like who else could be one of the most influential artists of the decade, I was thinking like Travis Scott is the main name that's brought up a lot by people. But mm-hmm. when you think about it, Travis is just Kid Cudi plus Young Thug <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, I think I think Travis is a great like midpoint between a lot of the more Definitely like esoteric kind of peripheral influencers and he kind of like tied them all together in a way that really resonated uh, with people in the industry um but it's hard not to when you when you got all that backing and those resources (laughs) all right um well shout out to shout out to jeff for writing a great article we i think we could probably keep talking about this for an hour but for y'all's benefit we'll uh we'll we'll cut it but thank you jeff Ryan, why don't you go ahead and introduce the, this was actually a video by Rick the Lie on YouTube that is a video review of Mavi's Let the Sun Talk. Yeah, and I think our first video yeah. uh, featured videos. on In Search of Sauce, right? Yeah, I kind, of, I kind of made this a point like, to bring a video because I think that <laughs> um, when people think of journalism, it's very much uh, a an article or like a magazine that it's printed on. I think that um, YouTube videos are such a... There's so much more you can do with that, and there's so much, so many creative people out there making great content, so I made it a point to bring a video, and uh, Rick just happened to upload this maybe, uh, Marvy video. I said it maybe last time, it's Marvy um, video just yesterday, I think. But, um, yeah, so... I wanted to bring this especially because it's an album review and I feel like the album review is a staple of hip-hop journalism and one yeah, the and basically the foundation of music journalism like I, how well do you talk about music first album review it too, is it right? is yeah. yeah so a couple of firsts for Ryan yeah <laughs> so I think it's very like fundamental how you talk about music itself how can you describe music it's it's all good to talk about the stuff around music, its influences and the effects of it, but how can you describe, how can you put across your feelings towards an album? It's very, some people try to quantify it, but I don't think it's very quantifiable at all. Um, the thing I love about this review in particular is how Rick picks out the themes and the kind of details his personal experience with the album, kind of piecing together those themes in his mind and how he um, kind of started the video referencing this tweet that um, Marvi put out and how he kind of, um, the rest of the video kind of hinged on um, the idea of that tweet and how it tied in at the end. I thought it was really, really well done. Um, And it's very short. A lot of people think they need a long, long time to talk about things. But I feel like uh, Rick has a comprehensive review of the album without diving too far into it and kind of um, spoon-feeding you um, what happens on the albums. Like, this song has this on it, and then this song does yeah. this, and this sounds like this. It was it was just like, just over five minutes, right? Yeah, just over five minutes long. It's yeah. Just, I felt like every second was essential. Yeah, exactly. If I missed any 10 or 15 seconds, I had to skip it and go back, which is typically yeah. not at all the case with YouTube reviewers. Yeah, and uh, many people on YouTube don't make use of the visual medium. A lot of like album reviews you can basically listen to as a podcast, but yeah. Rick makes use of his uh, visuals on it, 
like every single word he says essentially is paired with this picture that will pop up on the screen i love the format of his reviews <laughs> yeah but um okay so first question i want to ask you guys is what do you think of album reviews in general and what makes a good review versus a bad review you want to take it brandon uh so i think we talked about um hobo johnson review that was on pitchfork uh last week a little bit kind of as an example of what we thought in a bad review so i guess just kind of sum up those thoughts i had on that um is you know definitely you want you want to talk about the music in an album review uh essentially i think that that is you know that's what you're assessing and you shouldn't necessarily be talking about like the artist their self so much in a context as you know what they are bringing in the music uh, and for me, I kind of agree with what Ryan said, where it's it's hard to quantify something in a music review, and that's why um, in a review like this, you notice he doesn't actually assign a score to the album, which is kind of what I tend to lean on towards reviews anyway. I mean, like Pitchfork does have some fantastic stuff that they do, but when you have such a huge amount of reviews, you know, with scores, then it's naturally going to take people to comparing things and comparing projects that, you know, and even as a reviewer, someone's going to take an album that they liked and they're going to say like, oh, how can you give this a six when you gave album that I didn't like an eight? And then, you know, they'll automatically feel more inclined to disregard the content of that review just because the scores don't match their personal opinions. Yeah, Um, it can cheapen the review. It can cheapen all the words that have been put into it because people just see the score and think, oh, they must have just thought it was shit or just thought it was great but uh the justifying behind that is just kind of ignored yeah so i mean i definitely felt that he rick brought like not only did he take the album's content and flesh it out but he also like brought his own content um you know he brought his own thoughts to the review and explored them in the context of the album uh Mm -hmm. which i thought was incredible and i could definitely see like I can definitely see like small little things in this review that stood out to me as like oh okay like yeah like that's of course Ryan would love this like that's a you know like even <laughs> even the tweet about uh, uh, conflating nature with being representative of science and science instead of vice versa um, you know Ryan I know you're like a physics major or something along yeah. those lines and I also learned from their view that Mavi is a neuroscientist or something like that pursuing a a neuroscience degree and so you know like getting getting that kind of extra context brought to the album you know in light of the material that he's talking about was really additive you know it really added more to my experience with the album just having like listened to this review and i wanted to read out that tweet um that was kind of pins that kind of pings the whole thing together um i'm not american so i'm gonna say the first word like a british man um (laughs) (laughs) you all conflate with being with nature being representative of science instead of vice versa and suck the imaginative wonder towards the world that makes people do science in the first place out of everything um i missed that tweet i didn't see it um before the album came out but i'm glad it got brought to my attention because i feel the exact same way and as someone who's into science that's what made me want to do science it's exploring the wonders of the world and i love it when a review can um add a layer of depth to an album you already loved Mm -hmm. and uh bring something else out of it you just didn't know was there as well as hit the same points that you were feeling and kind of have that moment where you're pumping your fist because there's this big celebration of this album going on with this other person. Yeah. I guess I guess to kind of get at your initial question, which is like my thoughts on music reviews, typically I'm very dismissive of them. I think that people use a, the, the phrase album review as a guise for unimaginative content hmm. because they want to create and write music about, or write content about music. And that's what they've seen other people do, and that's what they think it's supposed to look like, and thus they call it that. Um, and especially when it 
trends from examining and exploring the album to judging and critiquing the album, that's when I really start losing patience and feeling like I just don't have time for this kind of shit. Um, But what I really liked about this album was how he, or this review, this video from Rick, is uh, one part, you know, how you said, very concise, quality substance on every second, but also, you know, there was no time wasted on, like, musical intro or jokes or rambling on single <laughs> points, just, like, expounding how he felt about, like, one specific thing. He's, I don't even think he said I one time in the whole video, which is what made it so valuable in my eyes because it really was just an examination of it. Um, and... I, you know, just to kind of point at it, how many YouTube videos do you see that just cut at the end of the substance? <laughs> yeah. That was that was the end I, of this I, I video. It was amazing. I was expecting to have to skip the last minute, uh, you know, and just like go through all the bullshit. But no, he was like, okay, I told you all the important stuff. I hopefully added to your experiential, uh, or, you know, the way you will experience and listen to this, and I'm out. Um, so I thought this was a great, great first video for you to bring. Um, and uh, I, I also want to just parrot Brandon when, when I was uh, watching the video for the first time. I was like, oh, of course, this is, yeah. this is right up Ryan's <laughs> alley. When he started listing all of those artists that are kind of <laughs> defining this new sub-genre, he was like, Earl Sweatshirt, Mike, and just started going through all those people. Well, it's basically Chris. a list of all of Ryan's favorite artists. Yeah. Uh, so the second he started going into that, I was like, totally makes sense. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of intrigued, Ryan. How did, how did you find, uh, Rick the lie? How did you find his content, his channel? Um, do you go to him often for these kind of reviews or did you just stumble upon this one specific video? Um, there's someone I follow on Twitter who's also a music reviewer. Um, his name's Ryan. His channel's called Not Real Music. And he tweeted out one of Rick's videos. I think it was his injury reserve review from okay. earlier this year. And I think I'd seen Rick just in my YouTube suggestions and stuff. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was wild to me because um, I think it's by far the smallest kind of like ready-made audience of any content creator yeah. that we've talked about so far. I think he had just under 3,000 subscribers. And the content is awesome. So if you're listening to this, oh, go subscribe to his shit. He's great. And he's yeah. really funny on Twitter too. Yeah, he's a cool guy. Awesome. So I... In light, in light of that tweet, Ryan, I kind of want to know, um, just because obviously I know how very into this album you are and how very into like that subject you are. So just kind of like, what is your interpretation of like, you know, how that tweet applies to the album? Because without this, you know, without this YouTube video, I don't think, you know, it would be super easy to connect the two, which is a lot of where, you know, the greatness of this video itself comes from is drawing those connections. But yeah, I just kind of want to yeah. hear, like, in your own words, like, how you, you know, how you draw that connection from Mobby's album. Yeah, um, I didn't really make the connection until I watched the video, but thinking about it afterwards, a lot of the things that that made me fall in love with the album is kind of in that vein. Um, I think the way he talks about love on the album, there's a song called um, Love of Money, where he says, um, the lyric is... My wallet in my ribcage, I love love enough for comfort, knowing money goes with it. And um, I think it's just that tweet exemplified, like, how his human need for love and, like, the, um, the wonder that comes with love, the unexplainable emotions that come with love, is kind of being confused with his pursuit of money in this kind of capitalistic society and kind of um, confusing what should be a very wondrous world with a world that's just uh, very quantized and like do this and then make your money and then you can do whatever you know uh, that wasn't a very good explanation, but no, no, that was good. Have, have, I like. Have you guys well. seen that movie, The Truman Show? Yeah. Yes. yes. Um, there's, you know, that one scene where he's a kid and he's talking about how he wants to grow up and be an explorer, and mm-hmm. the teacher says, "Oh well, honey, 
Look at the map. We've already explored it. You know, and and that that's kind of what it makes me what it makes me think of is that feeling because you're like even watching that as an adult, you feel like there's just something so tragic about yeah, it really about brings that you down. Teacher saying that and squelching taking on, that, on that desire, wonder but out of something. it's yeah, it's easy to fall into that a lot yeah. of ways. You that, just want life to be a bit more. You just want there to be more than what there seems to be and what yeah there's told to be, but. I'm not going to get in my anti-capitalist bag right now, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> we're made to think that's all there is, you know? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, because you guys are less familiar with the album, and, um, yeah, just did you watch the review first and then listen to the album, and what did you think of the album itself? I I did uh, watch the review first and then okay. listen, um, although I listened to, like, one or two tracks in preparation for watching the video. Right. Um, but my thoughts on the album, firstly, and it, it, this will be interesting to hear us all talk about this because each of us have spent more than our fair share of time running the Central Sauce submissions mm-hmm. on Submit Hub, where we get you know at least 150 songs a week, and so uh, one thing that re- and this is you know I think it was probably self released. Um, but in the very least, he's an indie artist in every sense of the word. It, it, it first came out great. on SoundCloud uh, without even individual tracks. It was just yeah. a yeah. chunk. And his own website, there's the only place you could find individual tracks. So this is like the exact kind of like le- or size of artist, time in their career that we're oftentimes getting submissions from people. Uh, so one thing that really stuck out to me, considering the fact that he's very early on and is mostly DIY, I loved the mixing on this album. Um, I thought the mixing was perfect. The levels were perfect, both in terms of the beat and his voice and in the ad-libs and the backing vocals. I thought the levels were all great. Um, and I also thought that the transitions went well. And those are the two things that ta- oftentimes take the most uh, time throughout someone's career to figure out. Like you can have great lyrical content or like great beats or great flow in that first album, but the chance of you being able to tie that in with with solid mixing and effective transitions that don't overdo it or get to that point where you're like, okay, I'm gonna skip ahead on this one. Yeah. Um, really, really rare. Uh, and I gotta say, um, when I I when that jazz fades in on the first track. After, after the intro, it was just so smooth, man. I just found myself being like, damn, I wish we could use this on the podcast. <laughs> like, I love, I love the little snippets that we have on the podcast, but... It ah. makes great background music in the, in the review yes. itself. Like, it's very... Yeah. It, it made it very smooth throughout the review, just getting those little snippets in. To... Yeah, yeah, definitely. And speaking um, on those transitions, like, there's a moment in um, Self Love, that track, where... Um, I think, I'm not sure if he cuts two samples into each other or whoever produced it did, but I think, like, there's a main sam- vo- vocal sample that goes on throughout the track, and every like, every four bars you'll hear this woman's voice come in, and then midway through the track you hear the woman's voice, like, become the main sample, and the whole track just kind of flips on its head, and that transition between those two samples is just unbelievable, and it gets me really every time. Yeah, crazy good. Yeah. And the fact that, yeah. like, that song is two sides of like this coin it are listen to the album <laughs> yeah to i was just so impressed with the technical side of it all because yeah. this isn't the type of you know subgenre of hip-hop that i typically really get into mm. um and i couldn't even tell you you know in all likelihood i'll probably listen to it a couple more times but it's not going to get that much replay out of it just because you know that's not exactly where my tastes lie but either way, that's something that I would accept on our submissions portal just because I was so impressed with the details yeah. and all, all the technical sides. Um, really great. Um, one thing I wanted to his, – his voice, you know, it does sound very Earl-like at yeah. times, but there's something in his voice that reminds me of MFN Mello, who's in, a member of Pivot Gang. He might be like the least um, popular or like well-known artist in Pivot Gang, um, but – yeah, there was something in his voice and his delivery that really reminded me of him. Um, and for anyone that isn't familiar, I recommend checking him out. He's an awesome performer, and he just has a lot of charisma and personality in his voice, which is something, a feeling that I got from Mavi on this. Yeah, so uh, I, 
I had definitely heard the album all the way through before the review. I maybe like at least twice or something. Um, and before the review, you know, I hadn't listened like extremely intently, you know, beyond just like, you know, a, a first listen. Um, but I can even say like off that first listen, I was just like, wow, like this sounds good. Like this just, this really sounds good. Um, and then yeah, it sounds professional. I was definitely excited to go into the listen again after watching the review because I was, I already knew that I liked the album. I already knew that I liked the sound of it. Um, and then, you know, after that review, I was like, oh, I can't wait to like look for these things again now that I've listened to the review. And like now that I know some more in-depth details, like I can't wait to go in and listen again. And I definitely think uh, it it executed what a good, you know, a good review or a good album analysis does. And it brought more things to the album, like more reasons for me to enjoy the album. Um, and especially, okay, after listening to the review and going back... I found a lot of comparisons kind of between uh, Dave's psychodrama. I don't know if anybody else was like super familiar with that, but I kind of got yeah. similar vibes, uh, especially the track Leslie, the one that off psychodrama, it's like a 14 minute long ballad, uh, basically mm-hmm. about Dave not knowing all the stories behind, you know, you don't know all the stories behind the people that you meet every day. Um, it talks about a girl on a train who's, you know, she's getting abused at home and all this, but, like, Dave doesn't know any of this, just seeing her every day. And then, you know, adding the context of once you know the background stories and the experiences that other people in your life and even strangers, like, once you know their experiences and you know what's coming from the background, then you feel closer, you know, more close-knit. Uh, you know, more like a family that, you know, that's a theme that they talk about in the review. And then that's also a theme that Dave hit really hard on psychodrama. So I just kind of drew like drew those parallels a little bit. And that made me love it even more because psychodrama was like easily one of my favorite albums of the summer, too. And that's a beauty of a quality review like this. It doesn't just spend all its time focusing on how someone felt about the album or opinions or even the context around the album. But it made you think about, you know, the topics explored, and uh, yeah. it, it was just a beautiful thing. I, I think he did a really great job um, checking the boxes and adding value to people, uh, and just enhancing the listening experience. So, Ryan, I think you did a great job picking this one out. Yeah, thank yeah. you, uh, thank you, Rick the Lie. Yeah, all praise to Rick. Um, I love his videos. He's always so well spoken as well. And he seems to talk at such a fast pace, I don't know how he does it. It's like a yeah, cinema sense. Yeah, how many times thing. he has to record. Right. Yeah, because it's so clean. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to Rick and shout out to Marvi. Shout out to Rick. I love your album, Marvi, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us nicely into our third and last piece of today's podcast which is Kanye West benefits from gospel does gospel benefit from Kanye West by Elias Light on Rolling Stone Um, so first of all just from a journalistic standpoint I think this article is a very solid representation of just what good journalism looks like you know even outside of music journalism um it you know it begins with a question and then it puts the question into context historically you know with additive information and then it provides all the extra information that the reader needs on both sides to kind of draw their own conclusion of the question um and the question here being you know in the title so does gospel music benefit from Kanye West And I think that the easiest way, you know, to approach the conversation off the bat is for, you know, each of us to kind of answer that question. And then, you know, from where in the piece are you kind of drawing some of those conclusions? And, you know, there might it might not be a yes or no answer. I think that's something they touch on in the piece as well, is that it's very, you know, very shades of gray. Yeah, Um, it's I'll kick it off because uh, 
I, I think it's I think it's an interesting question because um, he does a great job exploring it, and I agree with you that he it's just checks all the boxes of what good journalism looks like, um, down to the sources and the questions that he asks those sources. Mm-hmm. But getting to the whether gospel benefits from Kanye, it kind of makes me think about like whether gospel needs to benefit from Kanye. Mm. Um, because Deep. growing up in the South here in Atlanta, you know, my mother is a choral conductor and does a cappella choruses pretty much her whole life. And one of her specialties uh, throughout her career has been gospel and uh, sacred American music. Um, so I have sat in on at least 50 gospel a cappella choir performances in my life. And the thing about gospel that just about anyone in Atlanta could tell you is that the people who listen to gospel are going to be listening to gospel. And gospel isn't exactly a genre looking for people to come into it. You know, it has a very firm audience base. These people listen to gospel on the regular. It's really interesting. When I made the move down from D.C., just about every Uber around the D.C. area you get in there listening to NPR. Just about every Uber that you get into around Atlanta, especially if the driver's over 40, they are listening to gospel. And I just had not listened. Like in my first two weeks after moving down to Atlanta again, um, I heard more gospel than I had in the five years prior. And it, it just goes to show some people start their day every day with an hour of gospel. Um, and that's, that, was, that was kind of the the deeper question. So it was like, well, does gospel need, or, um, you know, Kanye West benefits from them. Does gospel benefit from Kanye West? Maybe, maybe it benefits from him in some ways. You know, it does bring a little bit more claim on individual artists and attention on those individual artists. But as a genre overall, I don't think gospel needs anything from Kanye West or just about anything from anyone because gospel has been what it is. And, as big as it is for you know nearly a hundred years, and I don't see any sign of its popularity declining among its among its target demographic. But um, then I kind of at the same time though, like the piece talks about how some gospel artists, you know, like big gospel artists, um, like specifically the one I'm going to talk about here is Fred Hammond. Um, but the piece talks about you know big gospel artists going and getting collaboration with other popular artists, like um, in the example in the story. Fred Hammond collaborates with Snoop Dogg. So, yeah. and he says that going out on stage with Snoop, getting him in front of a crowd of 8,000 people was something he never would have been able to do without Snoop Dogg. Mm-hmm. But then on the other side of the sword, he loses personal friends within the gospel community because he worked with Snoop Dogg, which I thought was, yeah. you know, very kind of underlies some of the resentful tone I feel like a lot of the piece takes towards Kanye coming into gospel because, you know, it mentions, like, a secular artist, any secular artist, let alone one who's as big as Kanye West, coming into gospel music is going to be praised for, like, oh, like, they're exploring out, they're doing something adventurous, they're coming into gospel, and they're going to get support based off that alone. Like, just with that being, like, the bare minimum they're going to get support because they're going to be praised for, you know, venturing out into something, something new. And then when they leave gospel music, the people who were there from the beginning already doing that, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, it's, they're not being brought anything into gospel music by the secular artists jumping in there. If anything, they're taking, you know, some of the listening and some of the streams just for, you know, a one offshoot adventure into gospel, which I think is a big part of the answer to the question for me depend really lies in how authentically Kanye is going into gospel music. Um, you know, if he, if this is really like his thing now, and you know, he is going to keep putting out this next gospel music is there this next gospel album and, you know, continue putting out gospel albums into that. Then I think it is a good thing for gospel because it's bringing a huge listener base to gospel. But if this is just, you know, kind of another, like, erratic Kanye West move, then, you know, he's coming into gospel 
and he's you know making that money off of that listener base by doing this new type of music and he's bringing that in there but then you know if he switches gears and goes back the other direction then all those people who were brought to gospel music by Kanye West aren't staying there and they're not yes. living in the genre they're just there for Kanye and then they're pulling out and then how many that's, that's artists really like how many artists like Fred Hammond are going to be you know he got hurt within his own genre by working with Snoop trying to bring more like outside of his listener base so like how many artists are going to be hurt by Kanye's collaboration if he you know pulls right back out uh, which I think there's another article on Rolling Stone that is by the same it's by Elias Light um, that was on Fred Hammond knowing that his career was going to be damaged by working with Kanye but doing it anyway which I didn't read in depth on it but yeah Fred Hammond knew he would face backlash for working with Kanye West he just didn't care so mm-hmm. I, I think that that Kanye's staying power within gospel is a core piece of that question that we just don't have to answer yet. That's really interesting that you brought that up because I hadn't even considered the prospect of Kanye continuing to do gospel albums after this. You know, like I just always assumed that this was a one-off just like almost everything in his discography has been. And typically I ascribe to the um, notion that Kanye's albums oftentimes don't really make much sense um, until like three to five years afterward. And this is the first album that I've not felt that way about because I I didn't feel like this was a, a setting of a new trend. I felt like Kanye was kind of getting in on something that's already become a trend for, for like one of the very mm, first really times point. ever. Uh, you know, it's not like Jesus or even Life of Pablo when I'm like, Okay, even in, in about five years, I think everyone's it's going to click for everyone and they're going to get it. And, you know, you're going to start hearing music that sounds more like this. And you're going to start hearing more gospel. I don't know if we're going to start hearing more gospel. Um, I, it, it, it's, just a, it's a really interesting concept that I hadn't even considered the fact that he might continue to make gospel after this. It seems like it couldn't possibly hold his attention for that long. I mean, well, I don't think it matters either way. Honestly, I don't think, like... In terms of listenership, if Kanye stays in gospel or not, I don't think there's a genre of gospel. I think the the, the gospel artists work outside of Kanye. They're still going to see nothing. I feel like um, Kanye is more acting as a shield to the rest of gospel rather than leading people into it. Um, And it's not like someone's going to convert to Christianity off a Kanye album and suddenly say, I'm going to start listening to all this gospel music. I'm really into this Christianity stuff. It's... I just feel like... um, Even if Kanye stays, makes gospel music, and I feel like people are just going to listen to the Kanye gospel albums instead of actually listening to gospel. They're not going to, like, venture out into the genre from there. No, because it's it's not going to sound the same. It's not going to be from Kanye. A good, okay, like a point I made, like in an observation about talking about Kanye's gospel album is I pretty much saw conversations on Twitter or, you know, wherever divide into like two camps where people were talking about one, is this a good or bad Kanye album? And then two, is this a good or bad gospel album? Um, And a point definitely made about whether or not it was a good or bad gospel album seemed to revolve around that it's more surface level of what Kanye expects from a gospel album, but while still being Kanye. Um, You know, there's a lot about uh, Kanye talking about how religion and Christianity and how God has given him all these things and how great it is and how people should, you know, turn to God because kind of look at all the things that God has given me, which from a gospel standpoint, I don't think connects with people who don't, don't have that you know people who yeah. are struggling and it it seemed disingenuine to gospel in that way yeah it didn't help when that headline hit <sighs> the news cycle a couple of days afterward about like quoting kanye about how god gave him this uh um tax refund yeah you know i think that was like a big just like <laughs> yeah. like everyone was like haha see i told you <laughs> so easy for a millionaire to say you know, yeah. 
Um, I, I did think it was really interesting that they decided to label him a secular artist until now, because like, I guess if you have to put someone into just a black or white bucket, like either religious or secular exclusively, then you would put Kanye into a secular bucket. But I wouldn't have ever really described him as such, especially for someone that, that that's that big and, you know, so in integrated into the pop culture. Especially after college dropout, late registration, and then all the gospel that was on Life of Pablo. Hmm. Um, I mean, he's had secular portions of his career, but I wouldn't describe him in broad swaths as just like a secular artist. Uh, you know, this is definitely the least secular thing he's ever done. But I thought that was kind of an interesting point. Um, I feel like his faith is something he's explored in every album. I don't think there's been an album where Kanye hasn't brought up God or his Christian his Christianity like the life of Pablo is based off Saint Paul the story of yeah. Saint Paul um Jesus Walks was on his first album yeah. I feel like um a lot of Kanye's album is about conflict and mainly his conflict with fame and God so much of it I feel like My Beautiful Doctor's Fantasy easily just about how fame is corrupt in his relationship with people and his relationship with God. So I would find it hard to strictly call him, like, non-religious or secular. Yeah, it's tough to apply those, like, very... They're very strict exclusive boundaries, yeah. But then, you know, it's like being... Having, like, religious content and doing gospel is, like, entirely different things. Where, you know, it's not... It's like... Like, gospel is its own thing that's also separate from, like, Christian rap. Yeah. So, because I think there are examples of artists who ex- better explore gospel themes in non-gospel music than what Kanye did on a gospel album. Um, and just kind of off top, like, Chance the Rapper and mm. Kendrick, I think both better explored gospel themes without making gospel music. Um, yeah, because I mean, it's guys who you know grew up in religious families. They yeah. grew up in and around the church, and if they're making authentic music about their life story, it would have to include that on a certain level. And do you guys think this is strictly a gospel album? Do you, is it a Christian rap album that uses gospel elements? Because I think it's a, just a Christian rap album that uses gospel elements. It's like a prey album. Yeah, I would lean more toward that as well. I think. <laughs> I think it's not like there's less, a booming choir in every song. More, yeah. more Christian rap and less gospel than what people expected. I think with the Sunday service thing, people definitely were expecting like you know more of a straight up just like the Sunday service choir. Um, hmm. And I mean, the Sunday service choir is really only credited on like the first song of the album. So I think yeah, it was less than what people were expecting there. But then I've also heard that the one that's coming out around Christmas, his next like gospel album that's allegedly we'll coming out yeah, around Christmas, yeah. <laughs> is supposed to be much more of the actual Sunday service. So, you know, mm-hmm. I can see if, you know, we're talking about the scenario where Kanye stays in gospel and, you know, this is his thing now, uh, this being kind of a transitionary album, like between the two things... Um, and you know, you know, if an artist is making a big change like that, you always got to give them a little bit of room to grow, you know, especially on that first change. So, you know, maybe this was his, you know, his first shot at gospel and he's going to make adjustments and, you know, put out something that's more, I don't know if in line with gospel is the right way to do it. Cause Kanye's never one to really like, you know, fall in line, <laughs> but if, He's going to go a path that I think could do more service to gospel, but yeah, maybe. But his... it's an interesting question because I hadn't really considered the Christian rap versus gospel thing. But like, you know, gospel—if we're—if you're putting on your super genre purist glasses, you know, genre doesn't have rap. At, at, you know, genre at some, at times will have spoken word over the chorus. Yeah. you know, over the singing. But at no point did I really feel like Kanye was really trying to emulate that kind of pastoral spoken word mm. approach over the gospel sound. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, I think it was a very gospel-heavy album, but I think I think it's a word people are throwing around a lot, and it's only like a purely gospel I album if you're someone agree. who just doesn't listen to much gospel. Yeah, definitely on. I mean, and that that falls in line with what I'm saying about like the themes not being, you know, incredibly generous to gospel, uh, where it definitely would seem more like a Christian rap album as yeah. opposed to gospel. But if Kanye exactly calls it a gospel album then that that is what people are gonna like you know that's what's gonna be hey, in their you head. don't want to argue with kanye i don't want to argue with kanye <laughs> you're like no one no one's jumping in line to argue with kanye it's not yeah. fun no um, especially because he willingly <laughs> well, doesn't what did what did uh himself. what did you guys really appreciate about this article in particular um like specifically in its discussion of it because I have to be real, like when Brandon initially let us know that he was sharing the, or was picking this article for it, I was rolling my eyes and was like, God damn, like, I do not want to read any more writing about Kanye, about Kanye at this time. I've stopped reading all writing about Kanye since the second he put on that red hat. Yeah. You know, like, I just listened to the music for myself. Um, and kind of even going back to the, like, the Mavi interview and why that video was so great, I felt like every interview, every article written about his last album before this yay none of them just discuss the music like almost all of them discuss yeah. the context around it and since then it's been so hard to so i was not looking forward to this conversation until i actually read the article um and i i thought it was actually really nice because it examined things from a different direction that i've seen on any piece of writing anywhere right. i looked at the album and the greater phenomenon from the gospel side of things and interviewed the like the people within that genre and industry, and yeah. really told a story that had previously been untold. You know, like this is one of I really feel this way that Elias here wrote one of the very very few truly unique pieces of content out there in the mass aftermath of Jesus is King. There was a lot of repeated sentiments, opinions that were made circling rounds all over the place. Uh, but this didn't contain any of them, uh, and I w- it was just it was very refreshing. Yeah, and there were a lot of people speaking for the gospel community as if they knew, but I'm glad this yeah. article actually brought people in who are seasoned in that, and kind of brought light to artists who um, who kind of uh, I won't say trailblazers, but kind of big in this scene. Yeah. Um, Mentioning someone like Lecrae, who's been, like, a huge Christian rapper for ages now. Yeah, he's, like, been the face of the genre. Yeah, exactly. And um, I feel like this wouldn't reach a lot of people. And they'll they'll kind of dismiss it because they'll feel like Kanye's done it, so that's enough knowledge on the subject. Mm-hmm. But this brought a lot of context that probably wouldn't have reached me. There was one uh, moment when he quoted uh, Derek Harper, who's the program director for Atlanta's gospel radio channel, Praise 1025. Mm -hmm. And that is what I hear any time I get in a car, in in an Uber in Atlanta before 10 a.m. Anytime. You're going to the airport, anywhere, I hear that channel. So that was just like, I was like, damn, they really did their homework. Like, this is the person to be asking about it. It was nice. And I thought the um, responses that you got were very interesting. Kind of um, how they expressed their right to experiment within secular music. Mm-hmm. And because we see it as Kanye going to gospel, but there has to be some kind of acceptance from the gospel side to think, you know, I'm going to take this on. So I think that's a very interesting um, standpoint. Well, uh, shout out to, to Elias for, again, like writing one of the few truly unique and uh, insightful pieces in a, on a very easy to skip over and cover in a surface way topic, Kanye West. Maybe the easiest of all <laughs> surface level topics in music journalism history. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of respect. Yeah, definitely, definitely brought, you know, new thoughts to light, new new angles and perspectives for sure and new questions <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely there's always some questions <clears throat> when it comes to Kanye yeah and I just want to say really quick <laughs> before we sign off that 
I don't even know if I should be drop, putting the spotlight on my lack of knowledge here, but like, I honestly wasn't even aware that Snoop dropped a gospel album last year until everyone started mentioning it recently yeah, because dude, Kanye yeah. dropped Jesus is King. Um, I had no idea that Snoop dropped a gospel album. Yeah, that, that kind of missed me too. That totally went under my radar. I don't even know, like, but I've, I've now seen it brought up and mentioned so many times in the last two weeks. And that's one thing I think Kanye might be able to, him entering it might bring acclaim to, like, other people who have tried it, like mm. Snoop. But, yeah, again, I don't think the gospel genre needs him, and I think even less than that, they certainly don't want him, <laughs> other than, like, a few key artists. Yeah. I think with Snoop, it's funny because, like, I think we're just used to him doing whatever the fuck. Like, <laughs> Yeah, he made... Yeah, it's like, oh, okay. He made a uh, reggae album a while ago when he converted yeah. to Rastafarianism yeah. and changed his yeah, name. Yeah, why wouldn't he make a gospel album with Snoop Dogg? <laughs> But yeah, so either way, yeah, shout out to Jeff. Uh, really, really dropped dropped a lot of knowledge and perspective on a topic that probably everyone feels like they already had everything figured out on. Yeah, so thanks again to uh, Jeff Weiss with Why Young Thug is the 21st Century's Most Influential Rapper. Thank you to Rick the Lie for Mavi's Let the Sun Talk Review. And then, of course, thank you to Elias Light for Kanye West Benefits from Gospel. Does gospel benefit from Kanye West? We got nothing for love for you guys. Thank you so much. This episode of In Search of Souls featured Brandon Hill, Ryan Gore, and Carter Fowler of the Central Souls Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth Open Podcast Network. Music for this show is fucked up by Basti. Thanks to Chill Breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Open Podcast Network production. Thanks to Basti, Chill Breakers, Central Source, the Fifth Element, and content covered in this episode can all be found in the description below. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for sources.